How do you think you're going to die? Like, statistically, if you're an American, you'll probably die of heart disease or cancer. That means a long, slow, drawn-out death, probably in a hospital. Obviously, right now, we're in a global pandemic, so you or I could totally die from COVID-19. How likely that is depends on your age, race, gender, location, underlying health conditions, lots of stuff. So it's hard to say exactly how likely that death is. But it's definitely possible. You probably know someone who's died this way. I know I do. Or you might die fast in a car crash or a fall or an opioid overdose. That's kind of a nice way to go for you, all things considered, but not so great for your loved ones. It doesn't exactly give them a lot of time to prepare, and that's before you think about the aesthetics. If you're like a lot of people, this whole thing is starting to make you a little uncomfortable. We don't like to contemplate our own deaths. I mean, we know they're gonna happen, and we also know that there are certain preparations we should probably make for them. But 60% of American adults don't have a will, and 40% don't have life insurance, so. Thinking about death changes how you think overall. In studies, participants who have been made to think about their own deaths have strengthened their values. They become more defensive of their group and prejudiced against outsiders. And they express more extreme beliefs when it comes to their religion and political orientation. The first study conducted in the field of terror management theory, as it's called, found that judges made to think about their own deaths, then asked to set bail for someone convicted on prostitution charges, set bail nine times higher than judges who didn't think about death. But when researchers revisited that study later, they realized that it wasn't all judges. It was just the judges who already had a moral opposition to sex work who set the bail higher. Again, the values they already held became more extreme. But our brains on death aren't all bad. We're more likely to seek immortality. We want children and fame and to belong to something that will outlast us, like a church or a company or a country. It can make us more likely to say we'll help strangers and be more eco-friendly and adopt healthy habits like exercising and wearing sunscreen. I mean, after all, the fact that life ends is one reason that life is special. It makes it important to enjoy things now while we can. When we're reminded that we won't be around forever, we'll do things to prolong the end times and make sure our presence is known long after our deaths. But the thing is, this happens whether or not you're consciously aware of it. Avoiding the thought of death doesn't make it go away. It just sits there in the background influencing your thoughts without your conscious knowledge. So the least we can do is agree to think about it. Just a little. And that's what we're going to do today. Because it turns out that there are lots of things about death and dying that are nothing like the stuff we get from pop culture. And the death you imagine for yourself? The reality is probably going to be way different. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. Taboo Science.
My guest today is intimately familiar with death and dying. Jenny Deer is a writer living in Southwest Colorado and the author of What Does It Feel Like to Die? Inspiring New Insights into the Experience of Dying. And her journey into this subject was a personal one. I had two parallel experiences. One, my mother had breast cancer and that metastasized. So I was with her through the dying process for years. And then after she died, about a year or two later, I became a hospice volunteer. And just watching people at all different stages in that process is so interesting and so different in many ways than my expectations were. And I wanted to find out more. I think I probably came to it with some really stereotypical expectations. I thought people would be really sad. I thought it would be really fast. I thought that, you know, that I would sit there and, and watch them conk out the way you do in, in Hollywood movies. And in fact, a lot of times dying is this prolonged process for my mom. It was, we knew for five or six years that she had a terminal disease. And she traveled to Italy with us. We went on walks every day. We had these wonderful family experiences. And there was a lot of joy even in her last few weeks. You know, you talk to people who have some kind of experience they would characterize as a good death. And it's very common to hear that sense of a really deeper connection with the people that you love. And we had that. And I think it's also, I think it's so important to know that there's that silver lining, that joy and that deeper sense of meaning and connection that can happen. And there's also suffering that happens. And I feel that our culture is so black and white about death that we either are afraid to talk about it. I had all these experiences at get-togethers and parties where people would ask me what I was writing about and I would tell them and suddenly they disappeared. They went back for another cocktail or something. They couldn't, they really couldn't talk about it. And then I'd have other experiences where people would get all excited and romanticize the experience. And they had these complete complicated visions of what their own deaths were going to be like. And we have so little control about that. And my experience is it's somewhere down the middle that there's hardship and suffering and there can also be beauty and wonder. Sometimes that beauty and wonder shows up in unexpected places. Like, I imagine that if I ever get a terminal diagnosis, every day after that will be the worst day of my life. And yeah, it probably will be pretty bad, but it often gets better. There's this wonderful term for it that a nurse researcher, Nessa Quayle, came up with. She says it's like an existential slap. And it really is. Because most of us, we know intellectually that we're going to die. And we know that from when we're little kids. But we don't really believe on a gut level that we're going to die, right? We think that's something that happens to other people. And if you have a terminal diagnosis, 
for a lot of people, that's the moment where you realize you're going to die someday, that it's something that happens to you too. And and it's hard. A lot of people get angry, depressed, they despair, they lose their sense of meaning and clarity. It's a really difficult process. But when researchers have studied it, what's reassuring to me is that so many of us are in this together, that it's quite common to have those reactions, those feelings, and to, and to lose your sense of who you are, but that we come out the other side of it. That for most people, that's kind of over after 100 days or less. And that when we come out of it, we often come out of it stronger, better people with a, with a clearer sense of purpose. It's, yeah, I, it's amazing to think of personal development while you're dying. Like, that, you know, I guess that doesn't occur to me. But so, so basically, like a fatal diagnosis can actually change you for the better? Isn't that a crazy idea? <laughs> yeah. But it, but it is. And researchers are working with dying people now to find out, inter, they call them interventions, that can help people cope better. Because some people do seem to, to find out they're dying and, and after that moment of existential crisis to, to accept it and to form these connections. And for at least some lucky or, as it turns out, persistent few, you develop and become a better person. And there's been a lot of work with post-traumatic growth what happens to somebody after a trauma where you can, after again, after that initial trauma, you can grow from the experience. There's been a lot less with people who are dying, but, but yes. And if you've worked with dying people, you've seen it. You see someone where the nurses and doctors are drawn to that patient's room if they're at a hospital or a hospice. They're surrounded by visitors because people want to be around them. They're not fighting it. And I think that's probably one of the most important characteristics. When people study what works and what doesn't, a lot of the, the strategies people use that you would think would be helpful are not necessarily helpful. For instance, if someone says, I want to find out everything I can about death and dying, that seems like a really good coping strategy. But it turns out sometimes they're not coping because what they're doing is avoiding the, the idea that they're dying by looking for more and more information and facts that they can fight. So acceptance is really important. I think of one wonderful researcher I talked to, Virginia Lee, who's in Canada, and her saying that as she researched the people who were more resilient after they got a difficult diagnosis than others, that she came up with this list of things that they could do, including reflecting on their life and thinking about what in their life had given them meaning, and then thinking about hard times, challenges they faced, and what had worked for them then. And then thinking about the future, even though they now knew it was more limited, that what were their goals and aims within that future? And she said she was developing the model and then sort of right at the last minute, she realized with the help of a couple of patients 
that she wasn't first giving them the chance to grieve, that that's really important. So before you start saying, okay, now let's talk about your life and what's worked for you and what gives you meaning, you really have to say, I have cancer and, it, and it's difficult and, and I need to grieve that. In the same vein, you can't expect a dying person to stay positive all the time. There's this idea that if you just stay positive, look on the bright side, be grateful for what you have, things will actually become positive. And that sort of implies that if you don't stay positive, your lousy situation is your fault. Which, of course, isn't true. Not only that, but it pressures people to push down and deny the complicated feelings they're naturally feeling during such a hard time which can make those feelings worse. We tend to expect people to be either actively dying on their deathbed, just on the verge of gasping their last breath or living fully. And if you have a terminal diagnosis, you're in this liminal place. And people complain when researchers have interviewed them about being expected to stay positive or encouraged to, to be positive. And you can't do that, right? You can't do that in your normal life when things are great most of the time. But I go back to that encouragement of the researchers who've looked at coping for really facing the idea that you need to grieve and then looking for those deep connections and allowing for the possibility of growth and a silver lining. And they always caution people not to expect those things. And I think that speaks to the concern about being overly positive and upbeat about an experience that's a struggle for all of us, that you shouldn't expect certain things from it when it's one of the most difficult moments in our lives, and yet you should allow for that possibility. Another way we get dying wrong is that we think once we get old enough, we'll just sort of fade away and die peacefully in bed at home, surrounded by our loved ones. Or if we don't live that long, we'll just die instantly in some sort of accident. But statistically, most of us will have a more complicated experience than that. You're talking about these these really helpful trajectories that researchers have come up with, because a lot of us imagine either that we're going to just sort of conk over and die quickly, we're going to fall off a cliff or die in a car accident, and then it's over. And for, for many people, when you first think about death, you go, well, that's how I want to die. Just get it over with. And, and I don't have to think about it. Or we're going to die sort of similarly to the way my mother did, where you're pretty healthy until your last couple of months or so. You're up and around and active, and then you get to say goodbye to people, and then you're out of here. But in fact, the trajectory that best describes the way that most of us are going to die is more like a series of waves that goes gradually downhill. So your health gradually decreases, declines, as you accrue multiple chronic conditions until you bounce in and out of the hospital and finally die of something, maybe like a common cold. And what's, what's hard about that is it means for a lot of us in the US, we'll be dependent on other people for months or 
or perhaps years of our lives at the end. And it's it's helpful just to know that, to have that picture as one of the possibilities. And that means that you may not die at home. And when the time comes, you may not even want to. We think we all want to die at home, right? Don't we have that classic picture of your family surrounding you in your bed and you get to say goodbye and then you turn over and that's it. And, and what's really neat is that lots more people now in the U.S. are starting to die at home again. So that dream or wish is coming true more often. But it's complicated because when the studies say they die at home, a lot of times they're actually dying in nursing homes because that's their new home. So when, you, when you're picturing that perfect death of dying at home surrounded by relatives, you're not usually thinking of something more institutional like a nursing home. And there's also this awful pattern that we've gotten into where when someone is close to the end of life, they often will get um, taken to the hospital, the emergency room, they might stay in the hospital for two or three days and they get taken back to the nursing home, then they get taken back to the hospital. And so then while they might technically die at home, they've not had that again, that classic experience of spending their last weeks and months in a, in a residence. The caveat I discovered when I started looking into people's experiences of where they die was that sometimes people find that, that it's better in certain situations to die in a hospital or a hospice residence. And that can be true if you're old and you're, maybe your partner is also old and frail and it becomes really difficult for them to meet some of your basic needs. And you may be really worried about the burden that you're causing them, or you may have a sense of privacy. And as your body breaks down, you don't want somebody close to you changing your diaper, or you may have severe pain that can be treated best in a hospital or a hospice, a residential hospice. Somebody can't treat you as well in your house. So it's again, one of those things where it's good to be open and a little bit knowledgeable about the possibilities rather than have those set expectations about what it's gonna be like. So, yeah, there are a lot of ways that our expectations of our own demise probably don't line up with reality. But there are some things you can expect. Especially when you get close to the end, for most people, you become fatigued, you lose a lot of interest in the outside world, your world starts to narrow down. And it narrows down even closer and closer or more and more so that you're not even interested in your closest family members and friends for a lot of people right toward the end. You're, you lose your appetite, you lose your sense of thirst. Something else a lot of us expect is that death is painful. I remember this drive I did with my mom. So she had her terminal diagnosis. We went to Denver for some treatment. We were driving back and we had this really lovely mother-daughter conversation about dying and whether there was anything left that either of us needed to say to each other. And she said, you know, I'm not afraid of dying, but I am afraid of the pain that might go with it. And that 
turns out that's true for a lot of people, right? That we, that we think that death is the scariest thing. And for some people, it's the potential for pain. And so I started asking all the researchers I was interviewing, does death have to be painful? And of course, like anything associated with death, the answer is complicated. <laughs> and they, they said, the good news is that for most doctors, some say up to 98% of the cases of somebody dying, it does not have to be painful that the physical pain that's associated with dying can be controlled. And then there's several caveats. And one of them is that the best way to control that pain for most people is some kind of opioid. And that we have this cultural history associated with opioids of deception, of addiction, of all these awful things. And they make patients reluctant to use opioids, they make family members reluctant, they make even doctors can be reluctant to use opioids. And you go, how could you be reluctant? This person's dying, they're not gonna get addicted, right? But one of the issues that I think is real is you probably won't be as conscious with an opioid or with the kind, with the amount that might be necessary to treat your pain. And some people are willing to trade a pain-free process in order to be as conscious as possible for as much of their time as they can. Another issue has been the fact that pain isn't the only discomfort that you might experience around dying, that you might have nausea, that you might have trouble breathing. And so it, there are physical discomforts that are associated with most dying experiences. But to me, it's such a wonderful piece of information that doctors do have the ability to control most of that. But like, how do we know these people aren't in pain? I mean, if someone's going in and out of consciousness and can barely communicate with the outside world, it's pretty hard to ask them how they're feeling. Well, it turns out that there are some ways to know. Margaret Campbell, a professor of nursing at Wayne State University, has done tons of studies on this very thing. What Campbell and some other researchers have used is they look at people's expressions. So are they, are they frowning? Are their breathing patterns different? Are they making grunting noises? And they can use those with conscious people who can report what they're feeling and then compare them with unconscious people to find out what they're feeling. And so for people who have worked with this, they feel really good about their ability to determine whether somebody's in pain or not. But they say that even nurses and doctors and people with a lot of experience, but not experience in determining pain, it's not necessarily so easy. And Campbell said she would see nurses leaving somebody in pain, in obvious pain, who was doing the grimacing and the grunting and the paroxysm breathing. And it was because they hadn't been trained in that. One big thing that can make a dying person seem like they're in pain is this sound called the death rattle. Yeah, this is a real thing. Sounds terrifying, right? Well, not so fast. The death rattle, the, the scientific name is terminal respiratory secretions. It's when you have these little secretions at the back of your throat near the end of life, 
that you can no longer expel because your muscles are weak or you're unconscious. And for people around the dying person, it can be really disturbing because it it sounds kind of like a rattle. Want to hear what it sounds like? Yeah, you do. Here's a recording of a death rattle from a dying patient. So it sounds like the person is in pain and family members will get really upset and even medical workers will want to somehow make it go away. And there's little medications you can give that sometimes help with it. But when Campbell did her research, she found, and other doctors have also looked into this and said, you know, it doesn't look like the death rattle is physically distressing for the patient, for the dying person that that doesn't seem to increase their suffering at all. And yet it seems for outsiders that it, that it does. And I think that's, that's so telling because we don't know what other signs and symptoms that's true for, for dying people, where they may be really fine physically. And we can't tell because from the outside, their bodies are breaking down and we're seeing that process. Another way that loved ones can be fooled by what's really going on with a dying person is with this thing called the lucid interval. This blew my mind when I learned about it. I was fascinated by, I didn't know this at all, the the lucid interval uh, before dying. Can you talk about that? Yes. Isn't that interesting? So in some cases, people who have lost consciousness for long periods of time or for a lot of people who have dementia, and they're just not making sense for months or, or years before they die, then right before they die, some of them have this period of lucidity, and it's usually like a few minutes, and they are making sense. They seem completely reasonable, like, a, like someone having just a, a reasonable connected conversation. And The neurologist I talked to said he figured it was a result of, you know, some of your brain changes right at the end. And and so for him, it wasn't this miraculous (laughs) recovery that meant there's life after death. But he said it's still it's beautiful and wonderful. And then it's and it's also very brief that can happen. Yeah. That said, some of the more amazing things we believe about death aren't backed by a ton of evidence. What I wondered about as a myth, that your your sense of hearing is the last sense to go. I think we've all heard that. And I said, well, how do we know? <laughs> and, I, and I talked to a neurologist who said, well, we don't. We, we really don't know for sure. And, and there is a difference between an organ being able to function and your brain being able to process. And so that makes it extra difficult to tell, right? Like somebody's ears are working, but is their brain able to process the information that's coming in? But, but it's likely that hearing goes after your eyesight because your eyes close and we can tell you're not seeing and, um, and you're not tasting because you're not eating or, or drinking anymore. 
Last year, a research team from the University of British Columbia attempted to test this idea. They found hospice patients who were willing to wear an EEG cap to measure their brain's electrical activity in their final moments, so the researchers could see how long their dying brains still responded to sound. Early on, when the patients were still awake and responsive, the researchers played a series of tones for them and measured their brain activity. Then, once the patients were on the verge of death, hospice staff alerted the researchers who rushed back to put the EEG cap on them and play the tones again. For at least a few patients, the brain responses to the tones looked very similar to when they were awake. Now, there's a big caveat to this study. It only involved 13 patients, and they were only able to record brain activity from five patients when they were near the end. But it shows how we might be able to really test this claim someday. Anyway, whether or not it's true that hearing is the last sense to go, the belief that it is true serves another purpose. And when people say that, what they mean partly is you really need to be attentive to what you say around a dying person, because it's easy when they're drifting in and out of consciousness a lot to talk about them as if they're not there. And we do know that people are still processing what they hear in a lot of cases, that people do hear what's going on around them. And we don't know at what moment they stop being able to process that. And one of the neurologists I talked to said, I keep finding out that there's much more going on than we knew. That's the revelation that keeps coming up. And therefore, doesn't it serve us best to assume that somebody can understand instead of assuming the opposite? I remember when my college boyfriend's grandmother died. She hadn't been doing well for months, and the family was sure that she'd be gone by Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving came and went, and then Christmas. Finally, in the early hours of New Year's Day, she died. The family marveled at how she'd waited so she could spend the holidays with her family. You've probably heard stories like this, too. Maybe a husband dies, and then out of nowhere, the wife becomes frail and dies a month later, as if she can't go on without her love. Is this a real thing? Well, yes and no. There's plenty of evidence that your spouse dying significantly increases your chances of dying over the next few months, at least if you're in your senior years. Deaths from natural causes do spike at Christmas and New Year's, but the reasons why are murky. Deaths don't drop before these holidays, which you would expect them to if everyone was postponing their demise until the big day. It could be due to winter weather or holiday stress, or the fact that medical professionals take time off for the holidays at the exact time that hospitals are overcrowded, due to all the accidents from a little too much holiday cheer, if you know what I mean. So while your true love's death can boost the chances of your own demise, we probably don't put off our death until some important event happens. And according to Jenny, this belief can actually be pretty harmful. The kind of thing that made me so curious about this research is that people who work with the dying and people who think about dying start to repeat these ideas that become myths. And there's 
often a kernel of truth or, or sometimes they're repeating truths. And I thought, well, how am I supposed to distinguish which are which? How do we know is hearing the last sense to go? How do we know if the death rattle hurts the dying person? And so for me, one of the truths that can take on that quality is the idea that, that we have control over when we die that you're waiting perhaps unconsciously for the long lost daughter to fly in from across the country and have your last meeting together, or that you're sure not gonna die with Susie whom you hate in the room. And as far as I can tell, there is some truth to that because there's just so many experiences that fit that, right? That somebody is able to say, life is no longer worth living my true love died a few weeks ago. And so I give up and I die. And I think it's because our will is involved, but it isn't, it doesn't give us final say because you also see people who linger long after they want to, there's nobody we can find that they're waiting for. They're really ready to go. And it takes days or weeks longer than there's any explanation for. So to me, that's, that's a truth that has some dangerous implications for people thinking that, it, that it's someone's fault, that it's either the dying patient's fault or a relative hasn't given them the closure that they need when in fact, maybe they have. What are a few ways that someone, you know, who is decades away from dying, how can they both mentally and just physically prepare for, for death? I don't, you know, I think for me, working with dying people is really helpful. And I also feel that I had, I had this expectation that working with hospice people would turn me into an enlightened being who was really comfortable with death and dying and with my own, I'm not going to say potential death, with my own eventual death. And I, and I don't think that's the case. So, so at least for some of us, it's this process that takes a lot of time and a lot of work. So I'm much more comfortable being around people who are dying and trying to listen to their fears and and joys and their experience. And I think that's that's all too rare, right? Without that that kind of at least a little bit of acceptance that that we're gonna die. It's hard to hear somebody else experiencing that pain. But I think as far as accepting my own death, I probably have a long way to go. And I think being around being around dying people is the closest that any of us can come to that. One of the nurse researchers I talked to said, you know, people are okay with birthing being a messy process. And we need to allow dying to be a similarly messy process, full of joy, difficulty, pain, and mess. But I believe that, that facing dying is facing pain and facing joy and meaning. 
And that's why it can be so powerful when we do it, right? It can take us back to that sense of, of what's most important. And I think that that's where a lot of us who work with dying people get to at some point. It's paradoxically what life is all about. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Thanks so much to Jenny Deer. Her book is What Does It Feel Like to Die? Inspiring new insights into the experience of dying. And you can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. You can also learn more at her website, jennydeer.com, where she has some surprisingly lighthearted videos about death and dying. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to a friend. They won't judge you for listening to it. Probably, right? Word of mouth is a great way to get your favorite podcasts out to more people. Really. Okay, the next episode is, title case, a very special episode. Because I'm about to go through a big life milestone. So, of course, I had to find a researcher who can tell me all the terrible, taboo things about said milestone. I seriously can't wait. Talk to you then. <laughs>